0: Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode of Success in Finance. Joining me today is Ian Daly. So Ian's had a really interesting, exciting and varied career. So he's built and sold two of his own multi-million pound businesses. He's facilitated the administration of a business that he then went on to buy. He's had failed management buyouts and other failed ventures or false starts as he calls them. You often hear that phrase, you need to fail in order to succeed. And Ian's story really demonstrates that. He's been part of the team that came up with the concept of the pay-as-you-go card, and he's been the CFO of a listed business as well. As you can imagine, he's got a lot to share with us and lots of key insights, Um, and underpinned throughout is the importance of financial literacy. As I'm sure you can appreciate, you can't achieve the above without being financially literate. So I hope you enjoy the episode. There's lots to hear and uh, lots for Ian to share with us. Enjoy. Hi Ian, thanks for joining me today. Uh, great to have you with me on Success in Finance. If you could just kick start for us with a quick summary of your career.
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, well, a long time ago when I was a very uh, young man in my sort of mid-teens, my mother took me to a, uh, a lecturer, a friend of hers, uh, who, who taught accountancy. Uh, and he said to me, there are two types of accountants. There's those that are uh, in jail and those that are very, very rich. And for some reason, that got me a little bit excited about what was deemed to be a really boring profession at the time. (laughs) Having said that, I went on to do a mechanical engineering degree at Edinburgh University uh, before then going on to do an ACA with Tooth Ross uh, in the mid 80s. Uh, So as soon as I could, I got out of audit. I I really wanted the uh, qualification to get into business. Uh, and at the time uh, Unipark Group of Companies was a fantastic or had a really good reputation uh, in, in for its finance function. And I spent a happy 10 years there in their sort of car parts and then subsequently their mobile phones business. Uh, and it was getting into the sort of new technologies at the time, um, digital uh, te- telecommunications, which at the time, everything it was a bit like uh, a Wild West show at the time because there was it was all new. And things you take for granted today uh, were very, very new at the time. And I think we may cover a couple of those things a little bit later. So having said that, I uh, then moved into some other smaller businesses, tried my hand at my own uh, setting up things uh, and was sort of unsuccessful to start off with. But uh, as I've said before, every uh, successful businessman has a few unsuccessful disasters on the way. And I certainly had those before uh, starting up uh, and running or uh, a couple of other businesses, which uh, are last in, in, in in the internet field, the last of which I sold uh, along with my business partners in 2018. So I think that's a bit of a summary for you, hopefully.
0: Yeah, no, that's really, really good and, and brief, Ian. Thanks for that. Um, so obviously quite a lot to cover today as your uh, as your summary is attested to. So we'll just skip through the fact that you, you did your training contract at Touche Ross, uh, now part of Deloitte or or acquired by Deloitte at some point or merged. Um and then you, you went straight into industry as soon as you qualified, joining Unipart, as you say. Do you just want to tell us a bit more about what you were doing there? Um, she were there for 10 years, so I imagine that was a good grounding for what you would then went on to do.
1: Uh, yes, I mean, I didn't do this sort of nuts and bolts accounting to start off with. It was all to do with sort of financial analysis and, and gross margin analysis. Uh, and from that, you get to learn how businesses work. Uh, and obviously uh, get to understand who the customers are uh, and and all that sort of stuff. And I, I basically moved in with bigger and bigger responsibilities, um, starting off uh, just looking at the, the UK domestic business, but then moved on as Unipart grew their business into an international field uh, where, in actual fact, when Europe was opening up, um, we ran their European parts business, Rovers Uh, Rover Cars Parts Business uh, for Europe from Cowley but we ran them like Italian, French and um, uh, Spanish companies setting up the companies and actually Uh, creating the accounts in the domestic language and according to all their laws uh, and and requirements. And and we had some funny, interesting translations because essentially we had three Collins dictionaries and doing literal translations for (laughs) for things like uh, account codes and various descriptions, which, of course, when we spoke to the... uh, people in Spain and Italy went, what the hell is this? You've just translated this directly, what does it mean? So we had quite some funny funny times there, but it was a unique thing to have a centralised financial function in one country, um, providing all the services for all the other countries throughout Europe. It was a real sort of EC, European Union sort of type um, uh, panacea, shall we say, in the accounting world. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I got promoted to become financial controller of their um, mobile phone business called Unicare. it had about 300,000 subscribers and Unipark sort of fell into this business because at the time, um, car phones in Jaguars were a big thing, but only people with Jaguars could afford them. Uh, and they had this idea that it would be good. It would be good to just sell to the general public, since they had all the knowledge of what were then car phones that were attached to cars, as opposed to pocket phones and the digital devices that you see today. Um, so I spent uh, yeah ten ten happy years there, um, and um, got into not just mobile phones, but pretty much anything that was digital and was mobile.
0: Okay, cool. And yeah, just going back to. the the work that you did from a financial perspective um, around margin analysis and financial analysis, how invaluable was that grounding in um, giving you the the skills to model your own businesses, which you then went on to do later in your career?
1: Well, I think from an accountant's point of view, understanding the business model and being able to uh, use that business model to sort of plan is absolutely essential. Um, I think, you know, you've got to be a whiz with your Excel spreadsheets, but then uh, who, who who isn't today? But at the time, that was sort of a bit of a unique thing uh, to create um, sort of complicated business models. Um, but you do have to know the detail because uh, sort of like today in, with, with the pandemic modeling, all you have to do is make one small assumption incorrectly and all of a sudden the business model falls apart or produces the wrong wrong result. Um, but yeah, no, that was a really good grounding, it got me to talk, uh, and got me to understand um, people who were the moves and shakers in the uh, automotive and distribution uh, business, but also get to be at the forefront of a technology which was really bursting at the seams in terms of growth, and, and that was really
0: exciting. Okay, um, and then I think during your time at Unipart as well, you obviously got the financial grounding, but then um my understanding is that you you did have that exposure to the sales side being in the business development team as well how helpful was that again in going on to set up your own businesses i th- i feel like personally sales and finance are the two key things that you need to succeed um doing something on your own correct me if i'm wrong
1: uh, well certainly yeah i mean um you 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 there's top line and bottom line and sales basically gives you the top line and, and, and finance and financial control ensures you have uh, a decent positive bottom line. Um, I, but yes, I, I think one of the things I, I I think I got right was I really got involved in, in the industry. I, I took more of a uh, detailed uh, interest in the mobile phone sector and all the things that was was happening. Um, and, and because of that, uh, I did ask to get moved into w- what we call the business development. It's not sales, but basically creating new products and services out of mobile phones. Uh, and that's something that I was um, really happy to do rather than just be a financial controller spending all night doing reconciliations before the auditors arrive. Yeah. Um, as, we, as we've all, re- all been there, I'm sure. Um, So, yeah, that's really gave me the grounding and I think the incentive to start thinking about what I could do for myself, not just um, to do with, you know, getting a, a, a good wage.
0: Yeah. And obviously being in that mobile phone space, a lot was starting to happen at the time. So finishing up at Unipart then, this is sort of where your entrepreneurial streak kicked in, I guess we could say. And you had a few um, failed ventures, is it fair to say?
1: Well, I think sort of uh, false starts maybe, uh, yep. but you never know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one thing that is important with any company that you work for is that the shareholder has to be the correct, right, the right shareholder. And this is whether it's a subsidiary or you are a, a public limited company, a comp- uh, mainly because they really have to have the heart in the business and I, I, we felt the management team at Unique Air uh, that really we we were on the uh, we were sitting on on a firework uh, and our our main shareholder didn't really believe it. It needed a lot more capital, a lot more investment, uh, a lot more cash, uh, because obviously mobile phones are paid for by the provider up front, and then you get the money back going forward, and, and you know it's a recurring revenue safe business after that. Um, so we sort of tried to put together some form of MBO to buy that out, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it was completely unsuccessful. Um, Though the, the Uni, Unipart were not interested in that, and that's the, that's their pro, That's their uh, issue. Uh, but let, let's say that uh, following that, most of the people or the um, uh, people who were involved in that that was their end of their careers at Unipart. <laughs> uh, but. Out out of that, that created, I suppose, uh, the 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 turbulence and the mix for everybody to go out and do their separate things, and because they had to, you know, you've got it, you can't just live on on your um, on your notice period for very much for very long. So it it caused people uh, to go out and do things. And what I did was uh, I moved in to uh, do some consultancy with another mobile phone business. Um which you know I was looking to go up to Manchester, move the family up there and live in Wales where I come from originally. Um but um I also met some other people that were all these movers and shakers in the mobile phone sector, and we were trying to do a big mail order phone business with Cellnet. Now Cellnet was the arm of B- the mobile arm of BT at the time. Um and I remember putting this together and, well, I've got this nice job, uh, you know, and there'll be share options, various other bits and pieces. Uh, but the con- the person that I was sort of doing the deal with, with Sellnet or thinking about, he said, look, Ian, I remember that in a pub, he said, look, Ian, you either want to be a wage slave all your life or, or you want to get out there and do your own business. And, you know, he said, I think now is the time to do that. Um, so... I basically says, no, I don't want that job. I want to start the, my own business. Uh, and then it subsequently uh, fell apart and didn't work. So, you know, you have these setbacks. You just got to pick yourself up uh, off the floor, which I was at the time. Uh, and uh, in the end, I uh, started a my own little mobile phone dealership with somebody else, uh, another business partner called Airtime Express, where we sold... Uh, Originally, mobile phones to or free mobile phones to generally uncredit worthy people. The problem with that is that they didn't, they all failed the um, credit test, so we didn't get very far with that. And actually, what we did reasonably successfully was selling into businesses, so going into companies and saying, Look, you have this mobile phone fleet of 50 phones, we can save you this amount of money. And we did that relatively successful um, in terms of just living from hand to mouth but uh, it wasn't something that we could really take a big salary out of each Uh, and in the end uh, I left because my wife basically told me I had to go and get myself a job that paid some money Uh, and I subsequently uh, sort of uh, split that partnership up um, and uh, I started uh, looking for a job doing a little bit of temp work for about six months and then became a financial director went back to my roots uh, for a uk subsidiary of integra which is integra uk which was a uh, internet uh, hosting and uh, development business and that was around about just before the dot-com bubble which was nice. a perfect time.
0: Great time to join. Um, just going back to that then, you said you sort of met with a few people who were the movers and shakers in the industry. So I just want to... Um, the importance of networking and meeting the right people. I know things didn't work out at that stage of your career, but did that is that something that became important later on, uh, making sure that you were meeting the people that you needed to? Um,
1: yes, I mean... People buy people at the end of the day. And I know we, we like all this sort of uh, remote working, but people do like do tend to buy from people that they, they trust and can see the whites of their eyes. Uh, it, it's something that's very important. And obviously developing your network uh, throughout your career is very important. There's all, always people that you can call on, uh, not necessarily to do a favour, but to ask a question who may have better knowledge than you. Or they've got an idea and they think of you to resolve it, and particularly for the finance guy, generally speaking, a lot of entrepreneurs have almost little or no financial experience. It's always good to someone to have a phone call, saying, I'm thinking of doing this, what do you think? And you know, you may get involved, you may not, but, but you know, that's, it's always nice that people can depend on you for a bit of sage advice and vice versa.
0: Yeah, and also, uh, you, you touched upon it there, it's something that people take for granted these days, and probably people a bit younger than me don't even know that it existed for a time but the pay as you go um card what was it like being in the team that sort of created that oh right
1: okay yes this is my one of my claim great claims to fame i suppose uh, I, I was working uh, that, this was back in at unique air um where at the time and this is something i'll give, give you a little bit of a, a history lesson with mobile phones but <laughs> if you wanted to buy a mobile phone you couldn't just go in and buy a mobile phone you had to go in Uh, You have to fill in a credit checking form. They would then fit the SIM card, make it live or nearly make it live. Um, It would go live sort of like a a few hours or even the next day later. And then you would uh, carry on from there paying a monthly bill. Now, the problem with that is that at that time, the saturation with mobile phones was 15 or 20 percent, not like 120 percent, which is today. (laughs) Um, And uh, particularly people with poor credit couldn't couldn't use a mobile phone so when Vodafone came up with the ability to have a prepaid mobile phone they had this idea of going to the post office with your card a bit like going to the bank and then topping it all up and what we came up with as a, as a team was we facilitated this with a prepaid mobile a prepaid calling card effectively where you paid 10 pound for a card which had a nine or a 10 digit uh, pin number and then that could be applied to the card uh, and then you just topped up like you do any prepaid thing today at the time this was very very new no it wasn't wasn't really a concept that people had that you were walking around with a 10 pound note which is basically uh, your your pin number but more importantly and this is where prepaid phones took off you you could buy a prepaid phone in a box with a card and you could connect it yourself because it was already connected it was a live phone with no money on it all you had to do was put money on it and and that is how prepaid mobile phones just took over the marketplace for a period probably for about 10 for about 10 years particularly for things like people like children uh, and poor uh, credit ratings
0: yeah and i think i was probably that generation of children that started to get mobile phones um i think i was Eleven when I got my first one, and yeah, it was probably using the pay as you go concept for seven, eight, nine years. So yeah. I, I remember those times. Yeah. But it seems to move back to the <laughs> that's all done remotely now. now so, yeah. you know but,
1: but the things times move on.
0: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, back to Integra then. Um, your FD, what went on there, and yeah, taught me through your time there, if you don't mind.
1: Well, again, uh, you know, this is internet. This is even even worse than uh, than the than mobile phones in terms of um, expectations and and, and growth. Um, yeah, we were the UK subsidiary. It was a French organisation. Uh, and it was an interesting uh, experience because at that time, that is how you have a successful business that doesn't make any money. In fact, it loses and burns cash faster than you can uh, shovel it into uh, a furnace. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I I was surprised how these organisations continue for so long. But obviously, you know, it was a new sector and people were investing into it and, 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 and doing that. But it did mean that, you know, a lot of financial control was required. And I saw a lot of detail because it was European wide. I think we had ten subsidiaries throughout. Um, and, and in actual fact, I got promoted to uh, chief uh, uh, group chief uh, uh, group group uh, financial controller. It was I think yeah. at uh, Integra. Uh, and then I saw how all the other businesses were being run uh, uh, where, where, and find out where all the cash was going as well. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, in terms of that, it was about reducing costs and getting more bang for our particular buck, uh, as well as trying to grow the revenues uh, at the time, which is obviously someone else's uh, remit, but we had to make sure we did it and had a financial model that was credible. Uh, and uh, it was good to get an interest in uh, all the other European businesses. Uh, I got sort of became financial directors in or f- directors of the Swedish and the Norwegian businesses as, as, and, and remained a director of the uh, the, the UK businesses as well. Um, but again, I got involved in the industry. I, I loved the Internet industry, the, the, the hosting side of it in particular. I loved recurring revenue. It's a wonderful business to be part of uh, and we we'll, may come to it a little bit later, but it is wonderful at the, once you've got the recurring revenue and scary when you haven't mm-hmm. uh, and that's usually at the start uh, and that's maybe some of one of the businesses that I, I had later on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did that until it all went bust and as I said it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ran out of cash uh, and it got bought out by an American organisation which had bigger turnover, um, bigger cash burn uh bigger loans and within about a year that went bust as well <laughs> so again this is all about the dot-com bubble of 2000 and um 2000 and yeah about 2002 uh, a lot of the these businesses were built a little bit on the sand um but um i was lucky enough that um in all that confusion uh, the uk business was actually reasonably sound um and um what that led me on to was that uh i was on holiday uh with uh, in in france and i had a phone call to find out that the business had all gone you know tits up uh, and what happened was i had a phone call with one of my directors he was the managing director of the integra uk at the time and we had this conversation well i think it, not there there is something we can get that's good out of this confusion um it was you know where the first first thing is where's my next job coming from but the second one was could we actually buy this business ourselves and run it successfully uh, all it needed was a few tweaks and helpful tweaks from the administrator because they will reduce a lot of your cost for you uh, and that's what happened and we basically bought uh, the integra uk businesses uh, and full fo- from the administrator uh, and uh, Folded that into a company called Interseer, which myself and my uh, business partner owned.
0: Great, and um, so the plan there was to to grow and sell over three years. I think it, it went pretty much like clockwork. You said, um, but can you just talk me through how? Um, I guess you you paid off the creditors and negotiated with the creditors um, that. That were owed money from from the Integra business before it sort of became Intocia, and then taught me through how um, yeah how you managed to, to stick to your exit plan.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a scary time because we none of us had done this before, um, and uh, we just felt that there was a there was a, a kernel of of a good business there uh, underneath. So we took the company into administration. And, and believe me, if you're ever in this position, the administrator before, your before you sign the document is as nice as pie to you. Uh, and as soon as you're in court, which you have to take it to a crown court, uh, he then says, I think I might fire you. Uh, basically, as you're going in to put the company into administration, I always remember that thinking, crikey, I thought he was a, he was a good guy. Uh, and, and then, you know, I just realized I'd, I'd, uh, I'd turned from a, a prospect into a customer. Uh, and uh, that meant that we uh, had to sort of uh, uh, toe the line as whatever he wanted and that was just a turning point that uh, when an administrator takes over, he takes over and the directors are mere passers-by who help him at the time. They're in control and they basically take the reins off you. Uh, and they do a lot of good things. They take, a, take get rid of a lot of the overhead without any real cost to the to the business. Uh, but what we did was understand how an administrator works and what their um, sort of uh, degree of how they judge success. Uh, and what we did was ensure that we could recover all his debtors in terms of cash, which is really important to him. Uh, and, and for that, we managed to do a deal or a proposal where we took on all the creditors um, and gave him all the cash and all the debtors. I think that's roughly it. And I think we kept the fixed assets as well. Uh, And the good thing about that is that we were, you know, in in a position to negotiate with the creditors for some of the equipment, because there was specific stuff that hadn't been paid for for fixed assets. And we were able to sort of negotiate 50% 50 pence on the pound uh, for that at the time uh, and that gave us a good grounding in terms of uh, reducing our cash that we had to put in um, and um, n- make sure that the business was on a sound footing and not overly leveraged. So ultimately uh, before we had done that deal uh, we'd done the proposal and we were waiting and I remember he came and said to me he said look Ian and he said my business partner tim look if you want it you can have it but you've got to have it now and at the time we hadn't actually put our um our funding in place we had a number of suitors who were wanting a bit like dragon's den you know for for pounds they won 90 of your company and then they sort of negotiate down to 50 percent um but we had none of that in place uh, and generally speaking long time for short we had one 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 chart at this and we just said yes we had some savings uh, and we all we all we needed to do was to make the payroll. Uh, and we felt that if we drew down on our credit cards, our £10,000 limit, that would have cost us a fortune in, in, in interest, but that's all we needed to do. And with our lifetime savings, we could just about make the payroll and then we would be solvent. Uh, but the good thing of that is one of our customers who was desperate for us not to go bust, uh, paid us about fourteen days early, and we didn't have to draw down on all our savings, or particularly draw down on our credit cards. And then we were away. Uh, that was how Unique uh, 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 um that's how Intersea, uh started. Uh, and we, it was really us against the world. And we, we, and we engendered that with that spirit amongst the team. And there were about 50, 50 staff, I think, something like that. It'd been cut from probably about 100 to 50. It was really sort of um, mm. reduced and we reduced the number of uh, consolidated the locations and just pare down on cost completely. Um, and slowly we found that we actually had a business, and uh, we grew that business and we grew the profits. And one thing we did do, which was unusual for a technology business, we grew a profitable business. Uh, and it's always been a mandate for me that you have to have a profitable business. And I think that's part of my concern of how um, Integra and Ingenuity work, where they just they grew at all costs and, and were never really counting whether they could make a profit at it at the end of the day. And that's, and that's all down to what is your business plan? How do you do this? How much do you uh, allocate to sales? How much do you allocate to costs and overheads and things like that? And and, and st- keeping as strictly as strict as you can to that that formula that you have in the business model
0: yeah and um yeah like you said it's your own money as well so you don't really <laughs> want to be running a loss making business um
1: it certainly makes you a little bit meaner when it's your own money when someone comes up for a, a, a some some trivial expense you go well that's my money it's <laughs> a bit like a partnership
0: yeah Yeah, as as you know,
1: probably centre partnerships are the worst because they always think, well, I could with that, I could have a Caribbean holiday instead of spending something on on business continuity or something like that. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. And uh, interesting, you sort of touched upon there what was key about making the business profitable. And I think you mentioned, well, I'm I'm imagining the analysis piece from Unipart was helpful. Um, You did the work on cost reductions at Integra. And then you said sort of someone else had done the growing sales piece at Integra. Were you having to then step into the growing sales side as well at Interseer?
1: I did a little bit of that at
0: Interseer. I had a
1: couple of sort of pet large customers that I had because at the time we also had to negotiate our transfer of contracts was important. When taking over as administrator, because of course it's a completely different limited company. So we had to share a lot of that between us. And, and there were two or three that I held on to. Uh, and having that relationship with the customer is really important. It's it's um, a financial person, you know, we'll come to a couple of the things they recommend later, but knowing your customer and having that um, uh, relationship, uh, even if it's one or two, is really important. Um, it gets you to understand how ha- how easy and how hard it is to be in sales. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 and that's important. But yes, my main task uh, in that role was to keep the costs down um, and to ensure that we had sort of a, a smooth running operation.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Interseer grew. Uh, sorry, in yeah, into see a group. Yeah, yeah um, was was a success, and then um, the time came to exit as planned. Three years. How did that come about, and and how did you? What was your involvement in that process as as the finance guy, if you will?
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw originally you know you get a bit of hubris and you go well we did ex- we did have this fantastic plan that we put together right at the start and, and we went through it in the first year and we ticked pretty much every box on time which is quite unusual for any plan like that but we three years we were growing we had plans to grow and in actual fact we pl- were plans to go through acquisition and this is quite interesting because as soon as you look to buy you then be seen as something who will sell and we were looking, we, we engaged someone to try and get us some small acquisitions. Uh, and then he turned around and said, look, I've got a company who would be interested in buying you. So as soon as you get into that pond, you know, you are either bait or you are, you know, you or you are, um, you know, or you are uh, your food or you are... Um, um, uh, um, uh, sort of, a predator yes exactly yeah, it's yeah. one or the other but it is a pond yeah and, and you're putting yourself out there uh, one way or the other and we said well we're not really interested and that's always a good that's always a good reply when someone's wanting to to buy you we're not interested in buying whatsoever how much is the next question but yeah. uh, and, and generally speaking don't say how much let them come to you if you're selling your business or even thinking of selling your business but uh yeah a a company called netstore who was in a similar business to us they were in some form of managed hosting they did security as well but they were in managed uh, internet managed services they came around and said we like the way you're running your business it's very mean it's re- very lean uh, and we'd maybe like to learn a few things from you uh, would you be interested in merging with us and we said yeah well that's quite interesting um and uh you know at the same time it was an exit which we had originally planned Uh, we agreed the money um, uh, although uh, we did I think agree too much paper uh, and one thing that I always sort of recommend to people is don't do everything 100% paper and this time I think we did something like about 40% cash and 60% paper but at the end of the day try and get as much cash out of it as possible it's never as good as it's going to be in in, in the prospectus uh, at (laughs) at the time it seems Mm. Um, but uh yeah this the the chief uh, the the chief uh ceo of netstore we thought was really good and we thought it was a very good fit for us to be able to expand our business and and what we'd found was that we were just a little bit small for people to take on uh, to be able to um uh, as as Interseer, a little bit small for people to give us their their um uh, their signature and we got a lot of silver medals and not enough gold medals. Uh, and, and as soon as we bought, uh, uh, went into the bigger group, uh, and this was an AIM listed business, it was probably five, six, seven times our size. All of a sudden, those those, gold, those silver medals became gold medals, and our revenue was uh, increasing significantly. And we had this uh, one-year earnout, which we absolutely smashed. Uh, and that's. You know not just down to us, it was down to the fact that we are part of a bigger group and therefore f- perceived perceived to be a safer bet for for business for people giving us their managed hosting uh, uh, business um, so uh i we, we did our own out successfully uh, and during that time i don 't know whether I showed any fantastic uh, financial skill, but the chief executive asked me to become the uh, chief financial officer. Um, And although it wasn't something I was really was at the top of my mind, I was at the end of the day a chartered accountant. And uh, being a CFO of a listed business is probably one of the sort of pinnacles of anybody's career. And I thought, well, may as well go for it. It's quite that's that's a new challenge Uh, and something I quite enjoyed. uh, You know, there's a bigger organisation, more staff uh, and more importantly, more investor relations. Uh, doing the rounds in the centre of London, but also you know going up to Glasgow and Manchester and Birmingham, all these fund managers that there are there, uh, and and try, in, in the small caps uh, and, and trying to persuade them to invest or at least you know keep their shareholding in us so that we could um, uh, keep our share price up. And as I said, we had a lot of paper, yeah. so I once I, I had a vested interest in making sure that the share price uh, stayed as it was or increased.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this is this is quite a. A silly question, I guess, but how important is being financially competent when, as the CFO, you're going into all these investor meetings? You're the guy that has to know the numbers, aren't you? So,
1: you, yes, I mean, you do. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, they they listen to the CEO a little bit, but then they're all all they're doing is looking for numbers and why it hasn't increased more, or or you know what your interpretation of the variance of where you said it would be and where it is now. Uh, it is all about so you get into some quite detailed uh, uh, I would say arguments but discussions about um, about the presentation that you do uh, do make uh, but you know it, it certainly helps you helps you with your presentation skills uh, and you know hardens you up to be able to you know, robust you know robustly defend your position uh, and you know how the business is working uh, or not working in actual fact uh, and and being able to convince them uh, to retain or or improve their increase
0: their shareholding. Cool. Okay. Um. So you smashed your ear now. Um. You you were the CFO. How long were you the CFO for? And then, when the time came, why did you ultimately move on?
1: Uh, I think I was a CFO for about eighteen months. I think something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I quite enjoy doing that, the, the thing I was talking to you earlier. Uh, unfortunately, I think international accounting standards started to mm. kick in for aim-listed businesses. And I did think that I was spending more of my time sort of converting that and, and felt that my job was going to be basically reporting. And as you can see you know, from my previous experience, I'm more interested in growing businesses profitable than making sure that the reporting is accurate in terms of international and consistent with the international accounting standards. But at the end of the day, I suppose, um, one thing was that um, I felt that the business was too small as an AIM business um, to, to remain on AIM and required some new investment um, in order for it to survive. There were a few things that needed to re- get redone uh, and as an AIM listed business, that would have crashed the share price. and. Uh, let's let's call it artistic differences at the board level as to where the strategy should be um in terms of whether it should remain public or it should sell or it should uh, uh go into private hands and uh i decided at that point that uh, i
0: to call it a day uh, and resign from the board okay and and just to note there from what ian said anybody thinking of going down the the listed business route um, in in a finance role there is going to be a lot of regulation around the reporting side of things so just be ready for that as Ian said and uh, you might spend a bit more time on that side of things than, than the strategy side that you might be expecting. Um, but yeah Ian so yeah you left and then what was next?
1: Well I sort of had a little safety net in that my other two business my Two or my business partner at the time and one of his uh, associates were looking at a new technology uh, in the the field of business continuity, Um, and uh, basically uh, we had some money to invest uh, and an idea which we thought was absolutely revolutionary, uh, which basically guaranteed a recovery of a a business uh, systems uh, following a disaster. Um, So uh, what we had was that at Interseer many people say we'd like some disaster recovery and we say yeah that's not a problem we'll build two and that'll be twice the price uh, and uh, then you'll be safe and most people said no (laughs) Uh, I don't want that can I have some backup instead. Uh, but we did think that there was a market for it and we built a technology which which basically syndicated this, uh, a larger site. So effectively, the technology would be tested and working on a platform. Uh, and the assumption was that not everybody in the UK would require the platform at the same time. And therefore, we could reduce the price of that sort of duplication of effort. Uh, And uh, we basically invested in the software and the technology. We had a a, a very good uh, sort of very small developer team and one of our uh, our new business partner um, to uh, develop that. And then we developed the business in what about 2008. We started with premises. Uh, We invested a lot more in the development side of things and then had proof of concept ready to go and start selling in 2000, early 2008. Nice. Um, and, as I said, that was a recurring revenue business with no recurring revenue, but lots of cost and that 's the scary part of a recurring revenue business. but uh, we persevered again, we were looking for a you know a three year re- uh, t- a term before we went on to the next job, but um, that was a lot slower um uh, One thing you shouldn 't do is kick off your business straight after a huge recession. Yeah, I was just going to uh, come back to that. <laughs> I remember Lehman Brothers went crash just just as we sort of launched it, I think. Um, and consequently, uh, disaster recovery was seen really as, well, there are lots of disasters, uh, and that's probably the least worst disaster at the moment, so we'll just put that to bed in terms of their, their our customers' plans. And so we started slowly, but it... Gain, gain momentum, Uh, and eventually, you know, it became a very, you know, went. It was wonderful. The first thing to see the first money coming into the bank account ever, Mm. Uh, and then the next uh, thing was when our overheads were less than our revenue and we were actually making a profit for the first time. And then beyond that, of course, it's very easy to just continue to make money, but it's really hard to get there. And during, I think, must have been the first year or eighteen months, we were just shoveling cash and more cash and more cash into the business or uh, until it became zero and then all of a sudden we were we were away and we had a nice recurring revenue business didn't have to worry too much about next month's sales because the actual revenue was there we just had we could play the long game with with sales uh, as long as we got good profitable business
0: nice okay um and then yeah the exit plan wasn't quite as quick as the 3 years you said obviously following the financial crisis that's not too surprising so you you were at plan b for 10 years and then decided to sell yeah i mean i didn't think we had decided to sell again
1: um it was it was supposed to be a technology business that we were going to create and then sell you know the next facebook or google or something like that um but uh, it became, we basically converted into a lifestyle business where it was a nice recurring revenue business, making money, we were making, taking money out of it, and to a certain extent, we didn't think that it would be something that someone would want to buy. So we didn't really go into it thinking of selling, but you know, we had had a few approaches, uh, and then I think sometime in 2017, we had an approach, um, and uh, we agreed terms subsequently and uh, managed to finalized the deal in 2018 and you know it's gone well for us and we you know it was a 10-year period and i think yes we were starting to get a little bit tired um you know a lot of the us against the world had gone um but it was still a fantastic recurring revenue and i think that you know our, our best profit was the, the the profit month was the month we actually sold the business so you know we sold it at the, the 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 pinnacle of its success from from our point of view so
0: i don't think there was any regrets there cool and i guess your involvement in that sale process was there anything different to the inter sale that's worth Touching on or or pretty much similar sort of responsibilities from your side?
1: Yeah, it was the same. I mean, you, it's lots of due diligence. Uh, I mean, as, as going through the sale and purchase uh, uh, agreements are, you know, laborious. Um, they are, uh, you know, something that you just have to go through and, and provide all this information. Um, and, and then you find actually, even though we felt we had fantastic record keeping then you find that when the, when you go through due diligence mm-hmm. there's something you're not you haven't got up to date or you haven't got copies of or something like that and then you've got to find it um no, and, and it really is quite a uh, you should actually almost put your business out for sale and go through due diligence process because it does sharpen up your your record record keeping significantly far better than does any auditor will find they go into so much more detail yeah, uh, but it, the same experience. But you know, lots of uh, you know, fingernails biting on off on off. You know, it's there's always sort of oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. Lots of negotiating and 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 uh, and positioning, but you know, you just have to keep soldiering on. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you'll say this is just too much. Let's just give it up. But mm. uh, we, we persevered, and and I think you know, we we got got the deal done within you know it was supposed to be a month, but I think it ended up by six or seven months, and then they're, they're never as quick as you think. that's because lawyers get involved
0: yeah yeah exactly um okay so just before we wrap up then um are there any regrets or anything that you might have done differently in your career or advice that you might have given your younger self
1: uh well in terms of regrets or advice i could well learn to touch type i would definitely okay i would definitely uh recommend or regret that i never learned to touch type as a younger self i've tried to do it as an older person and you just can't so if there are anybody who's six, 16 or 17 or whatever, get yourself touch typing and now because you won't be able to do it in your 20s uh, in terms of regrets yes but then they're, they're, they're not business they're more to do with family mm. uh, one thing you do not get an opportunity to have is um, be able to compartmentalize your your work and your life they tend to intermingle uh, and I, I do regret not spending as much time with my family. And even when I did spend time with my family, not being on the phone throughout Disneyland or on the beach in, 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 in Spain or whatever, talking through various things that, um, that had to happen in your in, uh, while you're away on holiday. So I regret a lot of that. But in terms of the things I've done, I've taken advantage, taken... Um, uh, the opportunities when i've uh, had them presented to me and you know i've had a varied career and i i don't think i'd really want to change a thing because if i change one thing everything else would change
0: yeah no exactly and it is good to hear the sacrifices that you do have to make like outside of work in order to have that success within your work life so so thanks for that ian um and then finally three key attributes that enabled you to be the success that that you have been in your career
1: Right okay well I had to think about this because you gave me a little bit of warning there <laughs> and 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 the first thing I'd say you really do need to know your whatever product whatever widget you're making whatever service you're providing you really need to get into the when you start a business in in the financing whether it's a financial director controller or even just manager role or you know j- just get to understand the, the what your business is providing and also speak to the people who provide it they will be oh, they will be more than happy to explain what they do and the reason why i say this is it helps you know or understand the business model and if you don't understand the business model you can't be a good financial person because you can't make good decisions so if you know what what you need to do to make that widget and how it how it stops being made or how it could be made better if and lo- you'll get lots of people will say, it could be may, may better if only you'd listen to me. And some of it's bullshit and some of it's quite good, but you can get to have uh, an understanding of not the service, but also you get the respect of the staff that are, are, are in the organisation, not just your financial uh, employees. The second thing is that um, I learned this in the, Inter- in, in the Integra days in mobile phones, know your customer. You've got to know who buys your particular product, what makes them tick, why they buy your buy your product. Um, it's really important to do that. And even if you're a junior financial manager, ask to go to some of the sales meetings. Ask to go with a salesman to some of the end customers. You get to understand a little bit more about the business and what it ticks and what makes you tick. And you know, I spent you know most of my time in finance, but the last seven eight. Nine ten years in, in sales predominantly, because I was doing a lot of selling in our, in our business in, 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 in plan b um, and, and it really is um, important that you understand how difficult it is for salespeople to actually get persuade someone else to sell to, to, to buy off you you know they can buy off a number of the, you know, as, as a finance person you can you can cut costs, you can change suppliers it's in, within your control to do it, but with a salesperson. it's not within their control at all. They have to persuade someone else to make that decision. It's pretty hard. And and you can only do that by, you know, understanding who their customers are and uh, how they relate to them and how you relate to their business and how you make their business successful. And that's something you've got to import. You, if you're doing business to business, which is generally what I've been doing, is that, you know, you have to understand why your service makes their service better. Uh, And then finally... Uh, Final thing is, you know, don't put off decisions, make decisions fast. And if you're not quite sure, just make the decision one way or the other based on, you know, your some form of reasoning. But make it quick, make it decisive, because that's all part of being a nimble company and a nimble organization is a successful organization. Sometimes you'll get it wrong. But generally speaking, if you trust yourself, it'll be the right decision. But just don't sit on it and make, make someone else do it. You want to be a decision maker uh, and you'd have to make decisions um, in, a, you know, in a timely manner because the worst thing in the world is to dither.
0: Yeah. Really helpful, Ian. So the three keys um, to your success then, know, um, know your product and speak to the people that, that are involved in making that product. Know your customer and and try and go to sales meetings to understand that process and what the customer is looking for, and don't put off decisions. Exactly. Cool. Believe in yourself. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ian. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, it's been great having you.
1: Great. Okay, I'm pleased to please to have done it for you. Thanks. Bye.
0: So that was Ian Daly. I hope you enjoyed hearing about his career and how he developed his financial grounding at Unipot over 10 years there, the importance of networking and how he's failed and succeeded. Um, I think he touched upon how both finance and sales have been important to his career. Sales becomes a big part of any entrepreneur. If you're setting up your own business, you have to get involved in developing that business. So important to take away the financial attributes that he's developed, um, as well as the fact that if you're setting up on your own, you do need to get involved in the sales side of things. So three key skills that he's or three key attributes that Ian honed in on were make sure that you know your product, Make sure that you know your customer and make sure that you make decisions. So know your product. You can't make financially viable decisions that are gonna benefit the business if you don't know your product. So make sure that you speak to the people involved in developing the product so that you can make financially aware decisions. Know your customer. In order to build the profitability of a business, you need to build the top line and you can't really do that in in a sort of efficient manner, without knowing how difficult it is for salespeople to sell and who they need to be directing their sales to. Finally, focused on the making decisions. If there's a decision to be made, you do it. Don't defer it. Don't let someone else do it. Make the decision. Obviously, calculate the decision, but make sure that you make it. Hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks.